Hello and welcome. Thanks for listening. This is Embodied Astrology, and I'm Renee Sills. We are just weeks away from the end of the 2020 presidential election in the United States. Whether you voted early, are planning to go to the polls, or have not planned to vote at all, if you're living in the U.S., then you, like the rest of us, have been inundated with political news, voter motivation, and mixed messages about what this election is really about. To settle some of the confusion and help us clarify our thinking and priorities, I brought on Shilpa Joshi, a community organizer and advocate working specifically around climate justice and policy, to talk about the impact that the current administration has had on environmental policy and why this election is so important on a whole range of issues. If you're anything like me, you might feel a bit depressed or disaffected by this year's election. It seems like there's just so much confusion, and beyond the confusion and spectacle of it all, a two-party political system that's been built to uphold white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, really just doesn't feel like that much to get excited about. That said, the astrology of this moment is giving me hope and encouraging me to remember that just because a system has been built to function in certain ways doesn't mean that it will always function that way. One of the many things I love astrology for is the way it points our attention towards cyclical time and process. As we move into the end of 2020 and into 2021, we're also moving through two significant planetary retrogrades and an important astrological transition signified by the once-every-20-year conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. As I discuss with Shilpa towards the end of this episode, this conjunction, which occurs December 21st, 2020, indicates not only the end and beginning of a 20-year cycle, but also the end and beginning of a 200-year cycle, which describes a potential for mass social change and consciousness shift. Now, I know that when it comes to both politics and astrology, it's easy to blow things out of proportion and talk in hyperbole. And I am also aware that those of us who like to dabble in the occult and metaphysics are often going on and on about consciousness shift. So in general, when I hear things like what I just said, I tend to be a little skeptical about the actual potential for actual change, especially when it comes to what needs to change in systems that have been building for centuries. I want to say that while I do feel a lot of anxiety these days about what's going to happen, I am absolutely certain that something is about to happen and that something is going to be big. And you probably feel it too. We don't need astrology to see that where we are politically, socially, environmentally, and spiritually is a breaking point and an ultimatum. We also don't need astrology to tell us that there is a critical mass building and that more and more people around the world are ready for radical change and a new vision about what life is all about here on planet Earth. Even though it feels dire and maybe even impossible when we consider power, money, weapons, and politics, my sense is that there is a lot to be hopeful for and also that now is the time to make a stand for what we want and what we value. One of my favorite quotes from this conversation with Shilpa is that voting will not be what leads us to liberation. Another of my favorite quotes from her is that if you are able and eligible to vote, it is the least you can do. This is a moment in time that is asking us to give our everything. Vote if you can vote because your vote matters, especially in the smaller races where sometimes a margin of only a handful of votes decides who will hold the office. And if you can't vote, you can still encourage friends and family to. 
If you choose not to vote, you can still be active in your community and engaged in political work by joining a mutual aid network or an organization that fights for local change, like chapters of the Sunrise Movement or Movement for Black Lives or Universal Healthcare for All, just as a few examples. If you're living in the U.S., you can also make sure to fill out the census at 2020census.gov. The census allows for our cities, counties, and states to ask for money for schools, transit, affordable housing, and health care, among other things, from the federal government. Black, brown, and indigenous communities are routinely undercounted, meaning they can't ask for the funding they deserve and need for basic services, which makes it all the more important to fill out the census if you live in communities with higher non-white populations. The census does not ask about your immigration status or other sensitive information, so take the census. It literally takes two minutes. Finally, Shilpa has made a link tree for us where you can find links to her accounts and suggestions for ways to educate, liberate, and get involved. You can find that link in the show notes or from embodiedastrology.com on the guest episodes page and the post for this episode. Thank you, Shilpa. All right, before we get into the conversation, I want to offer a deep and heartfelt thank you to all of the Embodied Astrology subscribers. Your monthly donations make this podcast and these guest episodes possible. If you like this show and want to be a contributor and get lots of cool subscriber perks, go to embodiedastrology.com forward slash subscribe. My name is Shilpa Joshi. I was born and raised in Portland, Oregon. I'm the daughter of Indian immigrants. I lived in Washington, D.C. for 11 years, and I got to do a lot of really exciting anti-fossil fuel company, anti-fracking work, organizing work out there. And I studied environmental politics in my undergraduate at American University. Uh, In the last four years, I've been grateful to be able to move home to my home state and work on a campaign here. Uh, that uh, was to pass the strongest climate policy in the United States. We worked on that for four years and uh, were not successful due to the uh, extremely high level of corporate takeover of local Oregon politics. So I'll get into that a little bit. But based on all these experiences uh, and how much I'm just passionate about local politics and organizing, I've developed a pretty keen sense of what voting actually gets us, where voting fits in with the larger picture of civic engagement and civic responsibility and responsibility of uh, action to our communities um, and what it doesn't do. Thank you for being on the podcast. Um, When I was thinking about this election coming up and thinking about how much I don't know when it comes to policy and politics, Um, You were the first person that came to mind as someone that I wanted to talk to personally. Before we get into that, will you just um, tell me, tell us a little bit about how you got into this line of work? Like, what was your original impetus to get involved? And um, what's your passion? For me, I feel like politics are pretty overwhelming sometimes. And you are so enthusiastic about engagement. And I find that really inspiring, but also a little mystifying. (laughs) That's a uh, good question. I, I've always been a very justice-oriented person ever since a young age. I think that my worldview was informed by the radical differences in lifestyle and economic styles uh, of my family in India versus how people lived here. And I was, great. I was able to visit my family when I was growing up. And so from a young age, I was, I was very keenly aware of the disparities that exist on 
sort of a more global level and then moving to the East Coast and learning more about how even the East Coast and West Coast are so different in their understanding of climate change, the climate crisis, sustainability, uh, environmental efforts. That's actually what propelled me into studying environmental policy was the sort of culture shock that I felt when I moved to the East Coast, because I think growing up in Portland, Oregon, I had a very rosy outlook on what I thought Americans uh, were doing when it came to caring for our, our planet. Um, and so it was a little bit of a wake up call, but I was also further for the first time exposed to the massive inequities that we have um, in our country, especially uh, in along racial and socioeconomic lines. And I think those disparities were more clear to me in Washington, D.C. than they ever were to me in Portland, Oregon. And that was a big driver of uh, getting involved in community organizing. One of the first things that I worked on was uh, I became more aware of food deserts in Washington, D.C. And so food desert is the concept of not having an accessible, fresh uh, supermarket or uh, farmer's market or bodega in your community that uh, has nutritious food. And you, there was a really stark racial divide of food uh, access in the, in the city of Washington, D.C., um, between like wealthy white affluent neighborhoods and that would completely drop off in predominantly black neighborhoods and so um, That was one of the first things that I, I got really interested and in, involved in and I did more community organizing when I was in DC than I did schoolwork So I just got really interested in organizing and learning more about it and learning how to effectuate change both on and off campus I think my personality is really geared towards taking action to make myself feel better about the injustices of the world. And I have a very large bandwidth for um, exhaustive, stressful work, uh, <laughs> is what I've learned. Not everyone does. Um, and, I, and not to say that I'm like superhuman and I, sh I should, you know, shouldn't self-care. And I'm, I'm learning that as I get older, that everyone has their limits. And I'm, you know, there have been times where I've been burned out, but I, I do think you have to have like a pretty strong, uh, expansive ability to handle stress if you do this work, especially if you're taking on the largest corporations in the history of human civilization, which is the fossil fuel industry. Mm -hmm. And so to me, there was all of these uh, boiling points that were all concentrated back down to what was happening with the climate crisis. So I felt like that's where I wanted to put my time and energy. And every issue that we have, I feel like whether it's immigration or housing or food or reproductive justice or anything connects back to the climate crisis or will be impacted by the climate crisis. So to me, it really felt like a nexus. And that's just where I wanted to focus my time. And I've been really grateful and lucky to be able to do that work for over a decade now. And we're all lucky that you're around doing that work. <laughs> Can you break down for me like the, the difference or the crossover, the space between what you do with coalition building and organizing and electoral politics? Because I know they're not the same thing, but I don't totally understand kind of where these two different spheres are separate and also how they overlap. So I, I think there isn't a lot of overlap except when we run into the people that are in charge of power. Uh, so when we are fighting our battles at the local level, whether it's to increase the amount of affordable housing 
or stop uh, an oil refinery from being built in our city or stop a pipeline or uh, create more access to trans healthcare, whatever it is, we as organizers, as uh, community people, you know, civically minded people or people that are just passionate about an issue are identify targets that can get us to that goal. And so I think the intersection that I found with voting is those targets are often elected officials. So the people that we need to influence in order to help us uh, protect our communities, make our communities more resilient and uh, get to a more liberatory place. Um, I don't think that it's necessarily voting that gets us there at all. So I I'm gonna say that several times in this episode. Voting does not lead to liberation. Voting does not lead to an end of the systems that have caused us harm in this country for hundreds of years. What, what voting does is the bare, absolute bare fucking minimum <laughs> that one can do to engage in the world around them and it's actually maybe even less than the very bare minimum that a person can do. But what voting does is it allows for us to green light collectively to some degree the person or people that we want in charge of basically everything in our lives. From mm -hmm. how our money is taken from our paychecks to how it's spent in our communities um, and for a large part, how it's spent without our will or consent. If you start talking about how federal money is taken from us uh, and then spent on like the military industrial complex um, and a lot of things that we don't see as, as just civilians. And so the intersection for me of like the work that I do to build a better world, we run into elections and voting because Quite frankly, if the person who's sitting in the office of power that we need to influence in order to get what we want, whether it's to stop a pipeline or whether it's to uh, get free you know, universal health care or uh, get student loan forgiveness, that person, if they are in any way in line with our values, even a little bit, is more easily swayed for the outcome that serves us than somebody who isn't. So that's really where the buck stops with voting mm -hmm. is I've heard it called harm reduction, which is like you're voting for somebody that will be, that will do less harm because we recognize that the higher the office, the more bought off the politician is and the more complicit the politician is in upholding and protecting corporations and property rather than humans and humanity. Um, so I never work on presidential campaigns for that reason. I, there's nothing inspiring to me about it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of money that goes into it and a lot of other people that will work on it. Uh, to me, it is the biggest suck of money, time, and resources that is that butts up against my world yeah. and all of the campaigns that we do all of the various social uh, justice and human rights and all of the things that are that we're concerned about we do all of that work with fraction of a percent of the amount of money that goes into presidential campaigns so it's yeah. very frustrating for several reasons um, 
but you talk to any organizer about what world they'd like to organize under. And I think in 2016, if you had asked me, would you rather organize in like a white, a Trump with a, like a, you know, a Trump in the white house world or a Clinton in the white house world. And I will, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't think that Trump was going to win. And so I didn't really have a strong answer for that. But these last four years have really shown me what even that highest office in our country is capable of doing and undoing as far as our protections and our resilience and our freedom. And so I'm taking that office more seriously in this election than I have before. Mm-hmm. And I, so I do want to break down all the way down the ballot what different offices do to the people that we're electing them to, like what influence they have over your lives. Yes, please tell us this. Okay, so I, in the last four years, I've learned from a lot of smart people and have seen that the office of the president, even though on paper is, is only responsible for a few things, like picking who the ambassador to, di- to different countries are. So the president of the United States gets to pick the ambassador to Sweden and India and China and all those things. Um, but the president of the United States also gets to pick uh, judicial appointments. So not just to the Supreme Court, um, but he or she gets to pick uh, all the lower courts as well. And this is the most critical that we've seen. They have to be approved by just the Senate, not the House and the Senate. Um, And because this president has uh, the same party control of the Senate, meaning that there are a majority of Republicans in the U.S. Senate, all of his appointments to the lower courts have been confirmed. And that has a far more reaching, much longer term impact on our lives than just the four or eight years that a president will serve because a lot of these judicial appointments are for life or they're for very long terms. And so, um, you know, we're looking at a lot of lower courts, like the ninth, you know, the seventh precinct, the first precinct, all of these different lower courts um, where the majority of our cases are heard in the United States, not a lot of cases, a very small percentage of cases go to the Supreme Court that are able to mess with abortion rights and abortion access, voting rights, uh, if uh, districts are being you know, gerrymandered, if voting booths are being taken away from different counties, um, tribal rights and tribal sovereignty, what happens when a corporation wants to mine on tribal land or mine on public land or dump waste on tribal land. Like These are all things that could be potentially controlled by the ruling of a lower court. Mm -hmm. Um, What we've also seen is that the office of the president is responsible for appointing the directors of many of the federal agencies. So the Environmental Protection Agency, the State Department, uh, the Justice Department, you know, all of these different agencies that do in large part get to uh, really mess with our lives. So one of the examples of that that I've seen recently is Uh, I obviously follow the work that the Environmental Protection Agency is doing, and we have seen a massive deregulation of corporations and and polluters uh, from the EPA in the Trump administration. So hundreds of regulations that have been put in place for decades to protect our air, our water, our soil, um, our health have just disappeared in smoke, an entire parts of the EPA's website are just deleted or archived. Uh, Recently, Trump 
put appointed a director of the EPA whose name is Andrew Wheeler. Uh, Andrew Wheeler at best is like a middling goon that would have never been the director of anything under any other kind of legitimate president and uh, instead has been made the top director of the Environmental Protection Agency. And one of his orders of business was to go after uh, tribal sovereignty in the state of Oklahoma where he's from. So he used to be an aide for the U.S. Senator from Oklahoma. And during that time, he proposed, which was in 2005, and Obama was president, but in that time, he proposed uh, legislation as an aid <laughs> that would have stripped just Oklahoma's tribes from their ability to protect themselves against dumping of waste on their tribal land from corporations. Mm -hmm. um, and it didn't go very far, but now he's the director of the EPA because Trump made him so, and that just happened. So the EPA went into the state of Oklahoma, stripped all of the sovereign nations, the tribes there, their rights uh, to stop from illegal dumping or any dumping of harm hazardous waste happening on their tribal lands and has handed over that power to the Oklahoma governor. So it's things like that, yeah. uh, that uh, we should now be watching more closely uh, for that office of the president, which I you know, will admit I was not watching very closely before. So that's the president. Mm -hmm. uh, for any of your listeners that are listening from a state that has a US senator or a House of Representatives seat that's up on, and it's gonna be on their ballot, um, the Senate and the House are responsible for taxes and the budget. So a few years ago when we kept hearing about a government shutdown, it was because Congress was basically in a gridlock between Republicans and Democrats and they couldn't agree on how to balance the budget. And so just like the example I gave of Andrew Wheeler becoming the EPA director and having this hazardous impact on the tribes in Oklahoma, uh, there are so many instances like that of government programs uh, that use federal money, whether it's housing assistance or energy assistance on your energy bill or um, EBT or the foster care system that do receive money, a lot of money from the federal government. And of course, uh, are also authorized to continue pumping money into our military uh, at, at a completely nonsensical rate. Like we put more money into the military than the next seven major superpowers military budgets combined. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have very little say in this except for who we sent to Congress. And so it's important to take a look at who that person is. Uh, and then moving further down the ballot, you'll have more uh, folks on, on the ballot that are most likely gonna be um, by party, so like the county commissioners, uh, if you have the, any state officials, so the state governor, the governor's like the president of the state, it's the highest ranking person in your state. And then every state has their own sort of mini Congress, that's your legislature, and they meet in your state capital. And those folks are um, chosen by a political party, so they have to run on a, on a party ticket as well. And they are in charge for a all of, the, all of the state taxes that take, get taken out of your paycheck or that you pay to the state, whether you own a small business or you work for a company and you get taxes taken out. And, that, and there's a whole host of things that the state budget is responsible for. For large part, they are responsible for a lot of things in, in the United States. So our, our roads, our transit, where sidewalks are. If you live in a poor neighborhood, there's no sidewalks, there are no trees. 
if you live in a richer neighborhood, there are more sidewalks and there are more trees, um, how your schools receive funding, uh, what kind of assistance is available to you in the time of crisis, which we are in now. So states that have really strong budgets uh, and have really strong planning and strategic planning, I would count Oregon among one of those states to some degree we have seen are better able to take care of the people of our state during something like COVID. However, um, Oregon has an atrociously outdated unemployment insurance system. And we've seen that basically tens of thousands of people in the state have still received, have not received a single dime from the Department of Un the Unemployment Department in the state of Oregon because their systems were so outdated and you had bureaucrats that were not updating the systems and not prepared for something like this. And so who we elect to the state legislature and to uh, like the governor and the, the treasurer and, and those positions really matters. Um, and then I would argue that some of the things I found most interesting is the smaller you go with the race, the more your vote influences the outcome of that race. So after, after working in Oregon politics for the last four years, I have countless stories I have heard where a local race for representative that we're going to send to Salem, which is our state capital, who's going to be in charge of our state budget, who you go to when you have problems in your neighborhood, is the most is the is the person we elect that is the most available and able to help you um, in in your for your family and in your community. Sometimes those races are determined by like twenty five votes, mm -hmm. fifteen votes, seventy votes. You know, I mean that's like you and a handful of your neighbors sometimes. And it really does matter if that person is somebody that, you know, is a former nurse and has become so disgusted with the lack of affordable health care and has been frustrated seeing people get sick um, that can't afford proper care, that it's galvanized them to run, run for office locally versus somebody who is a retired contractor uh, that was a contract lobbyist for a fossil fuel company yeah. uh, in Oregon for the last 30 years and made hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, uh, you know, working to further corporate interests in our state and now just doesn't really have anything else to do. So he's running for office. Like it really matters between those two people who's going to be in charge of those local issues that we see all around us. So all of those things start becoming more real to me the more I sit down with um, the different offices and what they are responsible for. Like my mom voted from India, so she got her absentee ballot and she's already voted. Um, and she was asking me about a water commissioner. She's like, well, it doesn't say Republican or Democrat near it, but there are two candidates. And you know, we researched the two candidates and one of them seemed like a good old boy that had been doing this for a long time, but had actually effectuated zero change and had just been, you know, just been in the position coasting. Whereas there was this young biologist who was like really excited about implementing like smart water technologies to clean our waterways and, and you know, have healthier access to clean water uh, for all the wildlife that exists in Oregon. And I was like, well, that seems like the clear candidate. And we wouldn't have known unless we had some time to look up who was running. And I'd say this is way easier for Oregonians and people who get mail-in ballots 
I'm a big fan of getting your ballot in the mail because you have time to actually sit with it and read over who's on it. Uh, and then there's, so there's, so for folks that go to polls, it can be a little intimidating, um, especially if you don't have a smartphone, because once you're in that polling booth, I remember voting in person in Washington, DC, um, you kind of just have to have your notes with you. You know, you can take in a cheat sheet, you can do your research in advance. Um, now that we have smartphones, you can pull out your smartphone in the voting booth. And if you're confused about someone, you can always look it up. Um, but doing a little, doing a little bit of Googling before you go in helps a lot with that. So, so that's, that breaks down. And if you're, and, and then the last part of your, your ballot is if you're lucky to live in a state that has ballot measures, which is, you know, a group of concerned citizens coming together, usually with the support of some nonprofits or some community organizations and using their, their own resources to get an issue passed into law. So there's a couple of ways we can change laws in the United States. Most of them in, in a lot of places are you have to go in front of the city council, you have to go in front of the state legislature, you have to advocate, you have to basically find an elected official who cares about your issue and you have to work with them to draft a bill and then push hard until it you know, goes through all, all the many processes. I'm, I'm really like um, distilling this down until it becomes a law. But in places like Oregon or Washington or New York State or California and lots of other places, you can have citizen organizations come together and put an issue on the ballot. And in Oregon, we've been able to do some really cool things with ballot measures. Um, this year, I'm really excited about um, Measure 107 that will limit, will, will drastically limit, finally, the amount of private corporate contributions that can be uh, contributed to um, politicians' campaigns, which seems mm -hmm. like a no-brainer, but mm -hmm. unfortunately, in Oregon, it's really been a runaway train of how much uh, corporate money has gone into local elections. Um, you know, these would be this would be like a state senate seat, and I think like 20, 30 years ago, you would have candidates spending maybe five to ten thousand dollars to like maybe get a postcard printed and then maybe some lawn signs, you know. And now, because of outside corporate interests, like the Koch brothers, like fossil fuel companies, like, you know, Monsanto, they see Oregon as a really important critical breeding ground for conservative policy versus progressive policy. And so those corporations want to put some person in that they can manipulate. And now those same state Senate races People have to raise $20,000, $30,000, $70,000, $100,000 because corporations, the bad guys, are putting up people and flooding money into their races. Um, and so I, I love that we have the ballot measure as an option because it allows for people who are concerned about an issue to bring up that issue themselves. There's obviously a lot more steps to it, but it allows for people to bring up an issue. So another thing on the ballot this year in, in Multnomah County, where, where I live in the state of Oregon, is for universally free preschool and early childhood education, um, which is 
so critical. And if you have listeners from outside of the country that are like, wow, you guys don't have that. Yeah, we don't have that. So, um, but we soon hopefully will <laughs> in at least this corner of the United States. And so ballot measures are great too. Um, we're so, we're so lucky in Oregon to get our ballots in the mail and also get this thing called the voters pamphlet that has all this information about the various people running and the ballot measures. It's a little more complicated in almost everywhere in the country and it shouldn't be, but, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's what voting looks like. Okay, cool. So for me to synthesize all the information that, that you just put out so generously, um, when we're going to vote, especially in um, a presidential election year like this year, we're definitely thinking about these high offices like president, vice president, et cetera, for the power that they have to appoint, like you said, directors of um, uh, agencies and uh, judicial appointments, et cetera. Um, but we also really want to be looking at smaller seats, local elections and um, ballot measures and uh, people going into different kinds of organizations that we might not recognize them as a party affiliate. And so it's important to do this research to see who is this person and what kind of interests they might have. Yeah. So the way that I like, the way that I think about it is the office of the president and the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives, the decisions that they make manifest in me reading a post on Instagram that I'm absolutely furious about or I'm like somewhat impressed by. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I had nothing to do with and I, especially if I'm furious about it, I don't feel like I can effectuate any change. Um, like the thing I actually read on Instagram about what happened in Oklahoma. So that's, that's like how that information trickles down to me it feels very distant, but it enrages me to the point where I was like, man, I really got to pay attention in the next election. So that's, that's how I think about those bigger offices. And then all the smaller offices are not really things that ever come to me like in an in Instagram post or anything, but it's like the things that I notice walking around my neighborhood and walking around my community or reading the local paper where I realize they're there is more to the story that could be impacted by me paying attention to local politics um, and wondering like where, who's working on this issue. Is it the city council of Portland? Is it the county commission? Is it the state legislature? You know, and like, it, it's gotta be better. Like our foster care system in Oregon is in a really atrocious state, you know? And we have in the course of the last few years elected uh, people that have been foster parents and have actually fought for kids within the foster care system in this state into the state legislature, which is really exciting. Like my representative, an indigenous woman named Tana Sanchez. Uh, and so we are seeing now leaps and strides being made with how kids who are in our foster care system are cared for, how they can report abuse that happens to them. Um, money that's made available to their transition out of the foster care system, all those things, because we elected somebody who really has a firsthand knowledge of what's wrong with the system, right? If we elect more teachers, we'll get a better education system. Like so, so that's, that's how I differentiate between like the, the really big offices that feel really far away from me because they are quite frankly, and then caring about local who I'm electing, electing locally because it does make my immediate community a better place. Mm -hmm. Um, so you had mentioned a lot of corporate money being put into these um, kind of smaller candidates running for, for more local offices. And you'd also mentioned um, 
having candidates who maybe have ties to a lot of corporate money or who have background in some kind of lobbying. And it feels to me like when I check in with um, the state of the United States and who gets to vote and where all this money is coming from for all of these campaigns and this huge spectacle every couple of years, um, I feel really disheartened. Like I start to feel kind of apathetic. I feel like maybe, I mean, I'm hearing you and I've heard people all my life say like, your vote matters and this is part of a democracy, but not everybody gets to vote. So many people are barred from voting. And like you've been talking about, there's so much manipulation of the vote by corporate interests. So um, why should people care about voting if the system is so rigged? I, so I have two answers that somewhat contradict that question. The first answer is, it it is rigged in that in that our our political system is set up to protect capital and property mm-hmm. so corporations their wealth and property especially the higher in in ranking in the political system you go that's what it will protect it is not going to protect the average person our humanity and our common and our interests it's just not. Yeah. So what I say to the person that feels disenfranchised, because they probably are, because there are many parts of this country where it is nearly impossible to cast your vote, especially if you're a black or indigenous person. Um, to, that, to them, I say there are so many other ways to fight for change in your community that feels so much more empowering and so much more replenishing and will lead to guaranteed lead to resilience in your community and ultimately liberation. And if that is what, if that is what your heart is feeling, if that is what is resonating is the, the, you, you feel the bullshit that's being fed to you by someone saying your vote matters and all you need to do is vote then your instinct is probably right. I'm here to tell you that on a gut level, you are right. But you can't stop at the disillusionment because you know better, we know better, we all know better that if we do not vote and we do nothing else, the only people that win are the people that have always won. Mm -hmm. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy to just be completely apathetic about it and then just say nothing can be made better because the people in power absolutely want you to think that because everything is going great for them. You know, Jeff Bezos made more money than is conceivable by anybody during the largest pandemic that modern society has ever seen. He doesn't give a fuck about us. He would love it if we didn't vote and if we didn't organize outside his offices and if his workers didn't fight for better conditions and all the rest. So that's one answer to that. Um, The other answer to it is, as I mentioned, there are, this institution is the one, these institutions are the ones that we have right now. And so this is where my theory of change diverges, basically, because I believe in tearing down the institution, and I also believe that that can't happen overnight, and so, we are trying to set this really terrible board game up in, 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 in any way that we could get any sort of odds that might help us. And that's in some small part what voting can do. 
Now, it only works if you have politicians that are responsible to the people. And I don't think politicians stay responsible to people the higher the office gets. But your local electeds that you're going to like run into at the grocery store, like the representative that I just mentioned, who I see at the park near my house quite often with her family, like these are people that I feel better about casting a vote for and then sending an email to, to talk about an issue I care about because it is setting up for us to manipulate the institution in the near term because people are hurting now. So it's the same conversation I have in my mind when I think about capitalism. Mm -hmm. I am an anti-capitalist. We need to tear down capitalism. I am a prison abolitionist. We need to end prisons. I, in my power, even in my community's power, do not have power to do to end capitalism today. So what I'm going to do is take the steps that I can influence. And one of those tiny, tiny steps is voting. Mm -hmm. And I will do that in order to basically create a runway for us to fight for a better world. So if that resonates with you, then go cast your vote. Yeah. I think it definitely resonates for me right now because we have so many exciting things on the local level coming up um, and so many horrifying things that could happen if uh, Trump is in office for four more years that like we would not be able to reverse the impacts of the climate crisis. We will definitely careen off that cliff Yeah, in every single way. Um, so we have to elect out fascists or vote out fascists. I mean, um, I'm not enthused about casting my vote for the other guy, but I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be more excited about casting my vote for all the things locally. And then the next part of this podcast that we're going to talk about, I'm, I'm going to go out and do all the things in our community that are actually keeping us safe, that are actually keeping us nourished in this pandemic that are actually helping us ride out these horrible things that we're experiencing in 2020 and have been experiencing for years with police brutality and with unaffordable housing and gentrification and lack of clean water and lack of clean air and all those things. So that's, those are my two very divergent answers on why should you vote? Yeah. So if you can vote, vote <laughs> and go to, go to the polls or to your mail-in ballot with as much information yeah. as you can look at the candidates who are running consider where yeah. they're coming from. But if you don't vote, you better be doing a lot of really dope shit in your community. <laughs> and you probably already are, because if you are anti these institutions, then you have found other things to do mm -hmm. to bring liberation to your people and your community. So it's, it's just really like, and if you vote, you also have to fight for a better world in a lot of different ways. Right. So, yeah. We can't just stop there. Yeah, exactly. So I've heard you say a couple of times, voting doesn't lead to liberation. Um, what do you think does? How do we get there? Great question. <laughs> I think I, I think that when we come together as people that are informed about the world around us, we are powerful. Um, I think the more people that we bring in and educate about things that are wrong in our communities and educate about ways that we have brainstormed that can you know, create more wealth access, more stability, more affordable housing, more fresh food available, better schools, better transit systems, 
safer roads, like all those things. We, that's, that's what resilience looks like. And ultimately those are pathways to liberation. And so if there's anything that you care about, anything that's like really been grinding your gears and it doesn't have to be like, there are some obvious things that are happening right now and people are getting really involved in. And uh, I think we cannot let our foot off the gas pedal when it comes to defunding the police, police abolition, prison prison abolition, all those things. But maybe you really are concerned about the march of corporations into our local governments to sell them on artificial intelligence technology. Maybe you're a tech wizard and you're reading all these articles on Wired about how these major corporations, Google, Amazon, massive companies are going to like tiny, tiny local governments and police bureaus and selling them on retinal scans, you know, ways of collecting our biometric information, all these different things, and you're terrified by it, I would say find an organization locally that cares about stopping the invasion of privacy on people and link up with them, go to a city council meeting, they're all on Zoom now, talk to your city council members, talk to your county commissioners, If the chief of police has to come in front of your city council, sign up to testify and ask that person what their stance is on these increasingly invasive, you know, tech things that are being installed in our communities without most of our knowledge and consent. So that's just one example to like, to like walk that all the way out to the end, but it could be anything to that degree that you're really concerned about. Like maybe you were an avid cyclist and you just are really incensed about like this happens in Portland. We don't actually have a lot of laws of how close you can park to a stop sign. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know this sounds dumb, but this is what I'm talking about. Like if you have, if, if cars are allowed to park right up to the corner, there's a very serious blind spot for motorists and they can't see cyclists coming around the corner and it leads to a higher amount of cycling deaths. And so if you really care about keeping people safe, your, your community is other people who ride bikes with you. You can go to your city council, you can go to your county commission, you can find a biking organization like Friends on Bikes or any other group by doing some light Googling sleuthing and talk to them about, hey, what are we going to do about this? And that, I mean, that's like a very small thing that you can do. Is there, what I'm trying to say is there are myriad organizations at the local level that are all built around trying to effectuate change on like a very set amount of things, whether it's reproductive justice, uh, whether it's trans rights, uh, you know, access to better healthcare for trans folks, whether it's, uh, you know, worker rights and like all of these fast food workers in Portland right now have been trying to unionize because even though we've started passing laws at the state level, for paid sick leave for fast food workers. Um, they're still not receiving it. They're just like not getting, and that's obviously a big deal during uh, this pandemic. And whatever the issue is, there, there are organizations, I almost guarantee it. We are lucky to have, um, it's, it's funny when I talk to my relatives in India because they're fascinated by the amount of 
like organizations and conferences we have they're like americans love conferences and it's like yeah we do love to get together and talk about our issues and like talk about things that we're passionate about and so that's one thing the other whole thing if if that feels intimidating or it feels like you don't you know it, it, may, it may feel inaccessible for ways and i can get into why it it bothers me that organizers still tend to organize in inaccessible ways um a lot of people especially in 2020 are doing what comes naturally to keep their community safe and protected and resilient, which is mutual aid. Mutual aid is a term that's been thrown around a lot, but basically it means distributing the resources that we have in a way that protects those that are most vulnerable. So if you have not been laid off in your job during COVID um, and you don't have any children and you have a pretty decent salary and you only have, and it's just you you're taking care of, you find a way to make those resources available to somebody that is on the brink of houselessness and maybe has kids um, and maybe has not seen unemployment come in because our unemployment department is shitty. And that, in just doing that, that is mutual aid. Yeah. Like if you've, in the course of this year, if you've ever donated to a PayPal that you saw posted on Instagram for someone that's on the brink of homelessness, or you contributed to a diaper drive or a formula drive or anything like, or like a food drive or anything like all of those things are mutual aid and so we've seen a lot of mutual aid in portland because we have become in this weird twilight zone that we're living in for some reason like a battleground for white nationalist groups which there's a long history of why those groups have activity in portland but the proud boys are driving over from rural washington and other parts of rural oregon and and sort of descending on us every now and then. And mutual aid for us looks like making sure that our protesters that are fighting for black liberation and against police brutality are, have the appropriate gear because mm -hmm. no one else is going to take care of them. And they are, they are fighting, they, they need to be in the streets doing that. So like raising money for gas masks, we are getting tear gas by our police more than any other city in the United States during Black Lives Matter protests this mm -hmm. spring and summer and fall um, every single night every single night the police are tear gassing us so mutual aid looks like raising money for tear gas masks um respirators bulletproof vests things like that like that's also mutual aid um and so i would say there is there is so much more personal satisfaction <laughs> that one can get in organizing locally with an organization that is pushing for change um, and or working on mutual aid because it's uh, in your control, it's in your backyard, you, are, you see the results immediately, it doesn't feel as like ephemeral and totally untangential as voting does. And it, I think it primes us and it and makes us more skilled to be in this for the long haul because that's what it is. When you live in a society like the United States, whose foundations were built on the forced enslavement of an entire group of people and the genocide of an entire other group of people, every action that we take to take care of our communities and make this place slightly better is an act of building up your own resilience for the long haul because we are all complicit in the violence that made America what it is by living here. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, even, I should say, unless black, you're black and indigenous, but many of us who 
benefit from the settler colonial scape that has been created here, uh, we have to be in it for the long haul. Mm -hmm. And I know all of this because of the leadership of Black and Indigenous people that have taught me, that have shown me what they are doing. Um, and I have learned from their example of what long-term community resilience looks like. Uh, and so I'm forever indebted to those organizers around me. I, I want to ask you a little bit more about that and this thing that you said that organizers are still organizing in inaccessible ways. Could you share a little bit about what you have learned about what accessible organizing looks like and effective organizing looks like and any tips or suggestions for folks who are wanting to get involved? So I think that there's a lot of big picture things and then smaller, more tactical things that organizers can do and are starting to do better. Um, when I started organizing in like the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, 2005, um, you had to, and it's still like this in a lot of different movements, you had to have resources, you had to come from a certain amount of money, you had to be able to buy a car so you could drive all over and talk to people. Um, and, it's, and I think people are becoming more aware of how having a movement that's defined by those that have sort of the like free time to access it dramatically sort of it limits your movement like you you're not getting you you have to you have to be able to have people at the table that have that are poor that are working class that are working multiple jobs that are single parents that are disabled that are black, brown, indigenous, that are undocumented immigrants, all of those things. And, it, and I'm not just like throwing all those identities at people to just sort of like make people's heads spin. It's that in the course of my organizing, there is a stark difference between organizing in a space where everyone is sort of the same socioeconomically, like ethnically, like, and has the same backgrounds. And the change that comes out of that organizing versus the spaces that are organized, led by those that are most disenfranchised. Because when somebody that is extremely disenfranchised is able to seek like, more resilience and liberation, everybody sort of like above them, privilege-wise, also benefits, right? Like it's, it's just, it's, that is the ripple effect that happens. I'm not explaining that very well. But so there are like big picture things. There, and you know, there's obviously things like, having um, American Sign Language at our events, at our protests, at our Zoom meetings, having, if you know that you're organizing in, in a big Latinx community, having uh, Spanish translation available uh, at our rallies, protests, events, whether they're on Zoom or they're in person, having childcare, making it possible that there are people who are good at taking care of kids that are coming that, that want to organize in that space, but they see that as their role is like taking care of the little ones. So their parents can also be more engaged in the meeting, having food available. Food is just like a very no brainer, but sometimes people don't think about it. It makes it easier for families to come to meetings right after work in the evening, if there's going to be food available, um, making sure. So those are, so those are, those are more the like more tactical things. And I think another thing is making sure that like, I think the, the ground floor entry point for all of the organizing work we do on any issue is education. So that's, that's how I 
get people excited about organizing with me, the things that I work on, is I want to make information as accessible as possible. And sometimes I think the more invested you are in an issue, sometimes it makes it so that you are, you get really wonky, like you, you get you sort of turned into a nerd about it. And then sometimes there's a gap in communication, right? Because like the way that you talk about the issue is super high level. And it's maybe not the most accessible to the people who think that they care about it and they want to learn more, but now they're intimidated because you're using all this jargon and you're using all these abbreviations. And so I love to make sure that our education materials on whatever we're working on are the most accessible possible. Are you using language? Is it translated? Is it accessible for, um, for deaf, our deaf community, for blind community? Is, and is the language like just not confusing? Like, it, can I read it and understand and not have to be a, you know, a policy scholar or like a legal scholar or something like that? So those are, those are some, I think, important things that I've seen people are doing more and more in our, in our like community organizing and things like that. And we can, I think we can always do more of, but I will say the more Black-led, uh, Indigenous-led, Latinx-led spaces, community organizing spaces I'm in, the more those boxes are just checked as like a given. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because that's how, that's, they know that that's where their community's needs are and that's how they will, you know, be able to ensure that people feel comfortable being in that space, so. Yeah, as a, as a note of personal interest, have you seen within those spaces um, examples of white people doing a good job being supportive to those black and indigenous leaders? And, and also how <laughs> for the white listeners? Yeah, I think, I think something that has come up that I've noticed, so yes, there, I definitely have seen many examples of white allies, white accomplices, um, being active accomplices in the organizing that's Black-led and Indigenous-led and Latinx-led. Um, you know, I think it's, as a South Asian person, I also somewhat put myself in that category of like a person of privilege, basically, not of the identities that uh, have, whose communities struggle the most in the United States. South Asian community is not a community that has the most struggle especially as a person with caste privilege. And so I also have, to, it's, a, it's a constant process to remind myself that the space I am taking up needs to be to the like benefit and empowerment of uh, the communities that are fighting for liberation. It's not about me. Um, so decentering myself, providing resources, providing my skill set. So like I'm really... I think I'm pretty good at like writing, um, writing letters to lawmakers and politicians because I've just done it a lot or helping people take notes and then sending them around from the meeting, you know, like whether it's in like Google Docs or something, um, giving people rides because I have a car, um, you know, and I like to drive and like going and picking stuff up. So just remind, you know, I feel like when you're in that space as uh, a person of not of that community that has more privilege you have to be an active you have to be actively thinking about your your taking up space and one of the things that i think has been most frustrating especially from some of uh the white community in portland in this time of uh fighting against police brutality and fighting for police abolition has been the second guessing that white people do of black leadership 
Mm. Um, that, and, I, and I think that just needs to stop. I think that's a facet of white supremacy and white dominant culture um, that white people and other non-black people of color are taught to just trust white people in, in inherently and implicitly without thinking about it and distrust black people. And so that has, that, to, that like function of white supremacy has unfortunately showed up in our organizing spaces over the spring and summer and fall. And so that's also an important signal. It's like, why are you asking so many questions about whether a permit was secured for this march or whether you know who's in, who's in office that we're gonna to talk to later, like when we go to a meeting or, you know, like that level of scrutiny is not afforded to a white person who just like led something, you know, especially to a white man, like a white men can just walk off the street into a house and be like, whatever, you know? And so that's that, that level of confidence that is immediately given to a white person and is immediately not given the inverse of it is to a black person. The scrutiny that is given to a black person, I think, is also really important to remind people that like we have is a constant unlearning and is a lifetime of unlearning and relearning that we are in- embarking on. Um, that there are some people that have been taught to us from when our infancy that we just are told that we can trust, which has no merit or n- no value to it whatsoever. And there are other people that we have been taught not to trust. And I think that really shows up in organizing spaces, and we have to be. Um, as white people and non-black people of color, we have to be very aware of that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Shilpa, as we kind of get closer to the 2020 elections and everything that um, is coming up around them, are there any like key measures, key races, things that you feel really passionate about that you want to share with listeners? I... I would say there is an exciting opportunity for us to topple the control that Republicans have of the U.S. Senate. So right now, Republicans hold 53 seats and Democrats have 47 out of 100 voting seats. Uh, So Republicans would have to get majority plus one in order to hold the, the actual majority, you know, sorry. They'd have to break even plus one. And so that would mean three seats to get to 50 plus another seat to get to 51. Um, Because if you have a perfect 50-50 split, all decisions in the Senate are tiebreakered by the vice president of the United States, which is great if it's Kamala Harris, which is not great if it's Mike Pence, right? So we want to get 51. So what this means is the U.S. Senate, the Democrats cannot lose any of their seats because that puts them one more back and then they have to gain it in some other state um, and they have to get four, four seats. So the races that I'm most excited about are Arizona. We have a Republican who was appointed. Uh, so she didn't really run, um, but she was appointed after um, Senator John McCain passed away. And uh, she is, Martha McSally, uh, is struggling to hold on to her seat um, because she's up against a well-funded, very well-liked former astronaut whose name is Mark Kelly. And he's married to former rep Gabrielle Giffords, who you may know became a heroine of the gun safety movement after she was shot during a campaign event in the early 2010s. And so Mark Kelly is a favorite. That hopefully will be a seat that we pick up, but lots of attention is looking towards Arizona. Um, Another one is uh, Colorado. So Cory Gardner is a Republican there. Um, 
he is running against the Democratic former governor, uh, John Hickenlooper, and there are pretty good odds there for Hickenlooper to pick up that seat. Um, in Iowa, which went strongly for Trump and is a pretty conservative state, however, the um, approval for Trump has fallen dramatically in Iowa. And so the, this, the woman who's the, the Republican candidate there, who's currently in the Senate, is now seeing a pretty uncertain race. And her candidate running against her, the Democrat, Teresa Greenfield, could have a really strong shot at unseating her. And there's also the main race with Susan Collins. Democrats and Republicans alike are extremely furious with Susan Collins for supporting Brett Kavanaugh's appointment to the Supreme Court. So she may be seeing herself get unseated um, by a Democrat there. And then the last uh, really exciting, which would be a really exciting upset if it was to happen, I think is South Carolina, Lindsey Graham. Um, Lindsey Graham is seen as like the puppet master of all Republican moving and shaking. Um, maybe besides Mitch McConnell, maybe be probably better than Mitch McConnell um, at being like that puppet master. Uh, and he could be unseated by um, a favorite of the former U.S. Senator uh, Clyburn. And that man's name is Jamie Harrison. And so South Carolina, Arizona, Colorado, Iowa, Maine, also an exciting race in Alabama as Doug Jones is a Democrat who fights to protect his seat against this college football coach. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's going to be a really exciting election night. There's even really strong uh, Democratic contenders in Georgia for the Senate and in Montana, which are like deep, deep red country, but they're just so great. These candidates are so great that they might actually have a shot, but we'll see. Uh, so that's, that's what the U.S. Senate is looking like. It's going to be a really exciting time. Yeah, I know Mitch McConnell is also um, running against Amy McGrath, who I wasn't very excited about. Um, her, I forget the name of the Democratic um, challenger to her, who I was hoping would, would get mm -hmm. the primary, but he didn't. Um, but either way, it would be great to get Mitch McConnell out of there, too, Absolutely. in Kentucky. Yeah. But those are obviously very important races, and people are watching them very closely, and a ton of corporate money is going into those races to protect the Republican seats. And so uh, I would say watch out for those. If you live in those areas, you probably already know because you're probably being inundated with TV ads and radio ads and mailers and things like that. Um, I'm, so I'm excited about those races. And then I'm really excited about all the stuff locally. I'm, I'm really like, I'm just extremely proud of all the organizing that was able to happen even despite COVID and unemployment and all the uncertainty of 2020 because you have to get hundreds of thousands of signatures verified by the Oregon Secretary of State's office in order to get a ballot measure on the ballot. And we got several really cool ballot measures on the ballot. Like one is going to decriminalize uh, nonviolent drug offenses in the state of Oregon so that if you're caught with any kind of hard drug that you don't get basically a punitive, you know, you know, cement block on your record for the rest of your life, but rather the ballot measure would decriminalize a bunch of nonviolent drug charges and create better access to addiction support, to rehabilitation, to all the things that should come and after. So that, to me, that um, maybe the people who are organizing it didn't think that it was prison abolition, but to me, it really speaks to the ethos of prison abolition. So I'm really excited about that one. I'm really excited about the corporate, the, the, the strong caps that are going to be put on uh, donation, corporate donations to uh, 
political campaigns in the state of Oregon, Measure 107. Um, similarly, there's a lot of, there, there are a couple of concerning ballot measures that have made it onto the ballot in California. Um, I haven't gotten the latest on those, but California is lucky like Oregon that we get a, that they get a voter's guide so you can sit down and read through it. My sibling lived in California for the last three years and voted there once and it was very confusing still. And so I would say Instagram is a great resource around election time lately because you have a lot of smart people that are throwing up great graphics to really distill down what all the measures mean who the candidates are and who they really are supporting and who like, you know, who they really stand for and who they're really going to fight for. Um, so I think social media is a double-edged sword, obviously, you know, there's um, Twitter, I think <laughs> is, there's a lot more bots and Russian bots and things like that. And that's popping up on Instagram as well and some accounts, but there's also like really lo a lot of really smart people to follow that can help you um, make informed decisions on, on your ballot. Um, and then I think the most important takeaway about the election that we all need to be ready for, and you're probably going to go into this from an astrological perspective, is that we, as much as exhausting as this election cycle has been, because we've literally been in it for two and a half years, three years, we've been talking about the elections for so long, it unfortunately is not going to be over on November 4th. Um, there is a lot of hard evidence and astrological evidence <laughs> to show that this will not be cut and dry, all neat and wrapped up, every vote counted by midnight on November 3rd. Um, the Trump administration over the summer tried to pull a lot of shenanigans with uh, mail sorting machines, um, which would, with more people than ever voting by mail, was an obvious, you know, sort of, strategy to lessen the amount of capacity that the U.S. Postal Service would have in getting ballots to election offices in an expedient manner. Um, lots and lots of polling locations have been closed. The governor of Texas, who is one of the most horrible people alive, has limited the amount of polling locations to one location per county. In a state the size of Texas, obviously that has devastating implications on a person's ability to vote easily. I mean, that would mean some people would be driving hundreds of miles and potentially waiting in line for hours, like eight, 10 hours. And so there are, and the disenfranchisement of black voters that's happened in Georgia, hundreds of thousands of black voters have just been disappeared off of the voting records in the state of Georgia over the last few years. And Stacey Abrams have been, has been fighting tooth and nail to turn that around. And so we should be ready for election night to be very stressful, and also we should be ready to not have a conclusion of who our president is the very next day on Wednesday, and we should be patient, because I think what the opposition wants is chaos. What the opposition wants is turmoil, and so by us being uh, totally freaked out and having meltdowns, and we are conceding way more than just the election to Donald Trump. Um, because we're also conceding the, the, like, the safety that comes with being level-headed, like mm -hmm. the safety of our communities. Like when things are in chaos, fascists in power can pull a lot more dangerous shit. And so my one piece of advice to everyone who's listening is 
if it means like deleting all the social media apps off your phone, if it means giving your phone to somebody like your partner or something and having them hide it, like depending on how close you are to this kind of work, maybe you clicked on this podcast link because you care about politics and you want to hear more about it. You're probably one of those people that should have someone hide your phone for maybe <laughs> a day or two because we are probably going to be this in this for a few months and we should let we should let smart people who care about fair and open elections be dictating what they are learning about how the votes are coming out and not the Trump administration, who is just going to try to freak us out. Um, and foreign, like fair and honest election, you know, watchdog agencies and nonprofits that are coming in to help with the U.S. election, which is so wild that that's yeah. happening, but that's definitely happening. So that's, dear listeners, what I would say is just let's like keep, uh, level as level ahead as possible and recognize that we are going to have to fight for the outcome of a fair election in the months to come, that it's not just going to be a given on November 3rd. Yeah. Yeah. From an astrological perspective, it's, it's super interesting. Um, Mercury is retrograde leading up to the election and turns direct on election day. Mm -hmm. um, and the station days are, are notorious for, fuck-ups and delays and misinformation, all kinds of messes. Um, Mars is retrograde until mid-November and is aspecting the U.S. chart and the U.S. sun pretty intensely. It's squaring the U.S. sun. Wow. Um, and there's a really significant conjunction coming up on December 21st um, with Jupiter and Saturn both moving into Aquarius. And that conjunction is um, definitely something all astrologers are thinking about and talking about. Um, the conjunctions of Jupiter and Saturn are um, known as the kind of markers, important markers of time when it comes to social and cultural evolution. Um, they're considered the social planets and they give us information about the, the mind of of the people at that particular time and how the mind of the people is shaping the social landscape. Um, they come into conjunction together every 20 years. And so if you look at their conjunctions, you can see pretty significant markers of social evolution or de-evolution, however you want to think about it. Um, and because of their orbital cycles, their conjunctions occur in signs of the same element for about 200 years. And at either side of the 200-year span, there's a little bit of a wobble between the two elements. So since um, uh, the 1980s, we've been in this kind of wobble between the Earth element, where uh, Jupiter and Saturn were forming their conjunctions for the last 200 years, and the Air element, where they will form conjunctions for the next 200 years as of December 21st. So they're making this conjunction first degree of Aquarius um, on December 21st. And then we're moving into this, this 200 year period. And this, this moment, like this wobble and the shift between the um, elemental energies and the social planets has, I've, I've heard it referred to as the great mutation, which I, I really appreciate just as a lover of names. Um, uh, but thinking about, kind of where we are looking back at the last 200 years and considering the significance of the earth element, which is material property, material wealth, ownership, um, earth for sure, like in, in earth's intelligence, but what people do with earth, um, especially 
in materialistic mindsets and in mindsets that um, elevate or prioritize ownership and dominance. And now we're moving into a 200 year span of conjunctions in the air element. And I feel like it could really go either way. Like a lot of people feel, you know, a very hopeful age of Aquarius kind of um, idealism and, you know, the possibility of moving into a future where there's a lot more elevation and um, organization structurally around science rather than um, dominant power or religion. Um, the air element is highly creative. It's collectivist. Um, it, it has a lot to do with uh, heterarchy or like more egalitarian um, social consciousness. But on the other hand, um, Aquarius in particular is associated with um, like large networks and conglomerates and corporate conglomerates. And so, you know, talking to you and then um, kind of cluing into like what's happening out there and thinking about, oh God, where are we, you know, in terms of, of our evolution as a species, it feels like almost like a coin toss or something. Like there's such momentum i think within the people right now like more and more people wanting change recognizing that we have to mobilize for ourselves no one's going to save us and we have to be here for each other and you know we we're in this together even if there's a whole lot of differences between us um versus corporate interests who i don't know it's like they're going for hunger games or something so I mean, I'm actually wondering if it's going to be a combination of those two Aquarian elements, mm -hmm. like those two Aquarian personalities, where it will be this creative, highly creative epoch that we enter into that is legitimized and endorsed by corporations. Uh -huh. Like corporations are becoming cooler. They're definitely becoming more savvy. They're becoming way more able to understand like what vibes with people and be as for the most part, like as innocuous as possible, except for like the really bad actors, like the fossil fuel industry and, you know, big pharma and stuff like that, that people know are like obvious aggressors. But even the fossil fuel industry has gotten really savvy about how they advertise and how they talk about their business to the people. So they have, over the last 10 years, started working very closely with farmers because mm -hmm. everybody loves the American farmer. And so the largest opponent to climate action in the United States is the American Farm Bureau and mm -hmm. was definitely the Oregon Farm Bureau for our bill in the state of Oregon. And so, yeah, I could definitely see this, us moving into this era or age where it becomes like corporate influence almost becomes indistinguishable and indecipherable because it's so woven between every facet of society and the corporate overlords are so removed and so completely and totally bereft of any sort of accountability because they are so far above us that we're just like moving and then we're just like contentedly having like creative expansive tech driven lives that are right. like cooler than they've ever been but also maybe the most shackled or like right. oppressed or something like I don't know yeah Some black no. mirror episode <laughs> no totally I'm with you there I mean I think that studying astrology really shows shows that there is no 
absolute. Like you can't look at any energy and say that's going to be good or that's going to be bad. Like the outcome's going to be positive or negative. It's always a mix. There's always a spectrum. And ultimately it's always up to an individual or a collective, depending on what, what the chart is that you're looking at, um, to really work with the energy and lift it to its highest vibration. And, um, I think astrology, you know, can be this, this tool for liberated consciousness in the sense of it gives such accurate and poignant descriptions of what energy is and how it's functioning. And it shows us where it's manifesting. And so if you're working with your own chart, um, I mean, I have had so many of these experiences and have them with other people all the time. When we look at their charts, it's like, oh yeah, you know, there's that part of me that's completely unevolved, that's really, you know, at a base level kind of emotional awareness that's functioning on fear, on scarcity, da, da, da. And when I can look at it in this light, um, then I can understand it. I can see how it's functioning and it gives me some kind of choice within it or some kind of agency to work with it and not just feel like, you know, I'm just messed up or it's all my baggage or something like that. And so I think on a societal level, there's also something like that happening. And I certainly feel it a lot. And I imagine you do too, that collectively there is a lot of inward looking right now. And there's a, a deep reflection that's happening on a collective level where people are looking at history. Um, they're talking about their experiences in different ways because of um, what digital technologies and the internet have allowed us, you know, to do, which is connect with each other and, through Instagram, through social media, but also across huge, uh, um, you know, huge distances and to translate, right. And to, um, make friends across the world. Like people are, are really evolving in their consciousness and able to hold a lot more complexity. And what I think is interesting is the first conjunction, um, in, in this great mutation in the air element occurred in the, in the early 1980s. I think it was 1981, um, and that conjunction occurred in Libra and it coincided with the birth of the internet. And when I think about the element of air and air as an element is very much associated with technology and with communications, as well as with freedom and with liberation, I think about the birth of the internet and the seed of the internet as being this anarchist, radical, liberatory idea of collectivist, um, you know, organizing and knowledge sharing and dissemination. I get excited about that. And then when the, the next conjunction happened in 2000, this was like at kind of the height of the dot-com boom and then the fall. And one way to think about that is like with this wobble, you know, that we started to move into a new paradigm, but we weren't done with the old paradigm. And so this paradigm of ownership and wealth and materialism uh, took over the internet, like took over that seed, right? Not completely, but in large part, the internet became a tool for um, the, the kind of uh, st structural materialism. And now at this, at this moment, as we're on, on the precipice of really moving into this um, new phase, who knows what it's going to be, um, there's all this talk around anti-capitalism and even, you know, people that there's one person that I'm thinking of who's a family member of mine, who's 
always been very invested in capitalism. And I never, literally never thought there would be a day when I would hear this person utter the words, you know, like capitalism is hurting us. It, it needs to go, right? And this has happened in the last year. And I think, oh, okay, maybe there's some kind of shift where, where we will be moving into some other manifestation of how we use our energy and resources. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, well, that I think brings me to my last question for you. Um, this is all really serious business. And I know that you spend your days like working on a lot of serious issues. And I'm wondering how you stay hopeful in these times. I love that question because I think it is always evolving. And my answer to it is always evolving. And I think right now what makes me feel hopeful is seeing the passion and the sort of new awakening in so many of my friends that I think of as more having been creatives and not necessarily politically minded that are finding their place in mutual aid organizing and community organizing in in being a voice um, and find just like finding their own voice so it really brings me hope to see how many people have been galvanized to take action for the first time this year and are doing a lot to educate themselves and starting to ask a lot of questions and expecting more from the world around them so that's really exciting um, i think i think another thing that gives me hope is young people organizing um, whether it's on the climate crisis or on against police brutality, on black liberation, like it's extremely inspiring to see the enthusiasm, the idealism. I mean, I sound like an old person. They're like the youth are, you know, they're like our future, but they're so smart and they know how to do things. They have such good instincts and they are so unafraid and are have so much energy and it's really inspiring to watch their leadership. Every social movement that is yet led by young people uh, is the most powerful social movements of our time. So, and I'm, I'm just like extremely impressed with what young people are doing with the worst situations that they've been handed. I mean, they are, the, the, when I'm saying young people, I'm talking like 15 to 20 years old. Um, have really lived through horrible things in their very short lives and are still finding a way to use their voices uh, for fighting for a better world. So that gives me hope and just like how we take care of each other this whole year, how good we've been about taking care of each other in small ways and big ways. Um, people are struggling with a lot of things outside of COVID. Um, this year has thrown so many curveballs for so many friends and family members uh, that we were that have nothing to do with the illness. Um, and it just brings me a lot of hope to show how we show up for each other and just continue to do that. If voting doesn't resonate with you, find the work in your community to make your community more resilient, to fight for liberation and make the world a better place because it will make you feel better than voting probably ever could. If you are voting, make sure you go in with your Google cheat, your Google cheat sheet and then Google the organizations and the community groups and, that are doing things locally 
to make your corner of the world a better place. We need you. We need you more than you realize. Everybody that is listening to this, you already have something to contribute. You already have a skill set that we desperately need um, to take on corporations, to take on corrupt politicians, to take on ineffective, bloated institutions that were built on a violent beginning of this country. And so we are ready for you and you have what it takes. You don't need to learn anything more. You don't need to learn how to do graphic design. You don't need to learn how to take a writing class or anything. You already have it and we need you. So get involved with an organization is my number one takeaway of this entire podcast is get involved with an organization. And then my second takeaway is let's be patient with the outcomes of the election because what the evildoers want is for us to descend into chaos. Shilpa, thank you so much. It has been such an educational experience and um, inspiring one to talk to you and really appreciate you giving your time and attention to us. Absolutely. Thank you for all that you do, Renee. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Embodied Astrology. Check the show notes for more information about Shilpa and to find her link tree and follow her on social media. And be sure to follow at Embodied Astrology on Instagram to engage in more conversation. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends and networks and tag Embodied Astrology on any posts you make. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe.